are now listening to the August 13th broadcast of Unity in Christ. This hour, we have 12 Apostles, Sermon, and Equipping the Saint. First, let's begin with 12 Apostles. Hello, Heart and Soul Gospel Ministry listeners. This is Brian Winston with 12 Apostles of Jesus. Apostle John, whom we are going to learn about today, is the son of Zebedee and the brother to James, whom we learned about last time. He was a fisher, just like his brother James. His father, Zebedee, was a wealthy man running a fishing business with many workers and was close to the high priest who had great power. John was born into a very wealthy family. According to the biblical scholars, John must have been in his mid to late teens. John loved Jesus so much and always stayed next to him. He was right next to Jesus at the Last Supper. He was the only disciple who remained with Jesus when he was crucified. He was the first disciple who ran to Jesus' tomb when he heard from Mary Magdalene that Jesus' tomb was empty, and he was the one who recognized the resurrected Jesus when he visited his disciples and said, It is the Lord. John was full of energy, but loved Jesus more than anyone at the same time and loved being with him. Today, we will learn about the Apostle John and learn the spiritual lessons our Lord gives us. Jesus gave James and John a nickname. Do you remember what it was? It was Bonergi, meaning the son of thunder. But John, who had such quick temperament, became Jesus' disciple, and Jesus loved him very much. John described himself as follows in the book of John. John was rough and carefree, but Jesus loved him. But there is something we need to think about. I don't think John's description of himself, being the disciple whom Jesus loved, did not mean that Jesus loved John more than any of the other disciples. Jesus loved all of his disciples. He did not hate any of them, and he did not love or like any of them over the others. Jesus loved all of them equally. The reason John called himself the disciple whom Jesus loved, even though Jesus loved all of his disciples equally, was perhaps because he experienced the love on the cross, the pinnacle of Jesus' love that was poured over him. Among the twelve disciples, John was the only one who was at Jesus' side when he was on the cross. Despite such a painful situation, John witnessed with his own eyes how Jesus poured out his great love for all sinners from the cross. Jesus was dying on the cross, ever so painfully spilling water and blood on the hill of Golgotha, where the smell of blood filled the air. Aside from discussing the theological implications of Jesus carrying all the sins of the world, John was the only disciple who witnessed Jesus' crucifixion. Jesus being the sacrifice for John and bearing John's own sin. 
We are moved so much when we merely hear about the gospel of Jesus on the cross. Can you imagine what John must have felt when he saw Jesus' crucifixion himself? After John experienced Jesus pouring unfathomable love on him, he described himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved when he wrote the book of John. This is John's confession of faith. I hope that it is also the confession of our faith. I am someone whom Jesus loves. Beloved listeners, can you confess, I am someone whom Jesus loves, just as John did? Or do you say, I think Jesus loves me sometimes, but I don't feel he loves me at other times? Jesus loves us, and he willingly gave his body for us, and his love is unchanging. Jesus' love does not become smaller or larger because of our actions, Jesus' love does not dwindle because we disappoint him or expand because we satisfy him, though that is impossible. Jesus does not love us on the basis of our actions, but loves us on the basis of his perfect love on the cross. Because Jesus loves us based on his perfect love on the cross, his love is unchanging and does not run out. Beloved listeners, we are people whom Jesus loves. Please don't forget that. I hope we will remember that at all times. One time, John went to see Jesus with his brother James and made a request. Let's read Mark chapter 10, verse 37. They said to him, Grant that we may sit, one on your right and one on your left, in your glory. They were asking Jesus, to have them sit on his sides when Jesus becomes the king in his glory. Because they have tasted the power of wealth through their family, John knew what the power meant and requested it to Jesus directly. Appoint me on the high position. In Matthew chapter 20, verse 20, it says that the mother of James and John asked Jesus to put her sons on the high positions. It is not certain whether John asked his mother to ask Jesus or John went with his mother and James and asked Jesus, but it seems that his family had a yearning for the power in the high positions. There is another incident that shows John's character. Let's read Luke chapter 9, verse 1 together. And he called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all the demons and to heal diseases. Jesus gave his 12 disciples the power and the authority to control demons and heal the sick. But something happened in verses 49 and 50. John answered and said, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to prevent him because he does not follow along with us. But Jesus said to him, Do not hinder him, for he who is not against you, is for you. John saw someone casting out demons in the name of Jesus, so he tried to prevent him from doing so. It looks like Jesus' twelve disciples were the only disciples that Jesus selected, and the power and authority to use the name of Jesus belonged only to the twelve disciples. But Jesus said, Do not hinder him, for he who is not against you 
is for you. Jesus meant, John, the work of God is carried out even when you are not aware, so be humble. John wanted to make his name known from the high position. He wanted to have the authority all to himself alone. As time went on, how would he have changed? This concludes today's episode. We will continue on with this story next week. Thank you for listening, and God bless.
Coming up next is a sermon by Pastor Mark Martin of Calvary Phoenix in Phoenix, Arizona. Today's topic is Don't Believe the Myths. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor Mark. And Acts chapter 14, verse 8. If you don't have a Bible, we can look on with somebody. We're always happy to share a look on our Bible with you at our scripture. Chapter 14, verse 8. Now at Lystra, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking. And Paul, looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith made him to be made well, said in a loud voice, stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lyconian, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance of the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifices with the crowds. But when the apostles, Barnabas and Paul, heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed down to the crowd crying, men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature as you, and we bring you good news, gospel, that you should turn from these vain things, another translation, worthless things, to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. Yet he did not leave himself without witness. He's pointing to uh, the revelation of God in nature. And I don't think this is his whole sermon either, but he says, he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even though you didn't know him, he's still being good to you. And even with these words, they scarcely restrain the people from offering sacrifice to them. The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. What's going on here? Well, if you're Greek, you would understand what was going on. Or if you're Roman, you'd understand what was going on. And the backstory, maybe some of you remember, but understand this better when you know the backstory. And the backstory was that Paul and Barnabas found themselves in the middle of a myth. You see, Greek mythology tell about Zeus and Hermes, these two gods, they visited Lystra, this town. And they came one time, when they came, they were looking for somebody to show them some kind of hospitality, but nobody does. The actual story says that the people shut their door in, in their faces. They found no hospitality except for one couple who lived outside the city. And this old couple offered them a place to stay and they took care of their needs. And they told the gods, we would like one favor. And two favors, give us two favors. And it sounds kind of like Aladdin with his lamp, you know. Two favors. One was that we would be able to be the caretaker of your temple here, the Zeus's temple. And two, that when we die, we would die at the same time so that one of us would not have to grieve for the other alone. 
And so their wish was granted. They became the caretakers of Zeus's temple, and they became, uh, uh, when they died, they, they died at the same time. And later, as a, another honor for them, Zeus raised them up and made each one of them two stately, beautiful trees and planted them on either side of the doors going into his temple. This is the story. Now, as a punishment to the city for not showing them hospitality, as a punishment for their lack of kindness toward them, Zeus destroyed everyone in the city. He destroyed the city, and that was that. So now... These citizens remember, oh, my great-great-great-grandpa told us about the time when our city was destroyed by Zeus and Hermes when they showed up and nobody was hospitable to them, so it's not going to happen again. This is our second chance. Because Paul and Barnabas had brought such attention by healing this man that everybody knew was crippled from birth. Everybody heard about it, got the excitement up, and they saw Barnabas, who must have been more the stately, tall, probably good-looking guy, and Paul was short, and we already described Paul one time, but he was the talker. And so they said, this must be Zeus, and this is Hermes. And out of excitement, they began to talk to one another in the Lyconium language, the priest of Zeus ran out and he began to prepare oxen for sacrifice, decorating them with these flower garlands. Now, they were giving their best. If you gave an ox in those days, you were giving your livelihood because you needed an ox to plow fields to get your food so that you could live. They were offering their best. And Paul and Barnabas realized what was happening and they were horrified. People ask, well, why didn't they know what was going on beforehand? Why didn't they see it? Well, when Paul and Barnabas first got there, the people were speaking to them in Latin. Latin was the common language that the Laconians would speak. You know, it was the language of commerce and all. But when they got so excited, they began to speak in Lyconium. And that language, Paul and Barnabas didn't understand. Note this, Paul and Barnabas spoke Latin, Greek, Hebrew, and Aramaic, four languages. They could understand them, they could read them, they could write them. So they didn't know what was going on until they saw the crowd and became obvious what was being done. As Jews, of course, you never worship any person nor any idol or an image of any so-called God. They ripped their clothing showing separation. When you rip your clothes, you're showing, I'm separating this from the other. In other words, they're saying, we are not having any part with what is going on right here. And so Paul preaches a message. They didn't have scripture. There was no synagogue there. Maybe there are a couple Jews, Timothy and his mom and grandmother. I don't know if there are any others, but they with certainly no witness of the scriptures among those inhabitants. So Paul had to appeal to nature and things around them, and he was building an argument for the one true living God based upon that. 
is saying you have everything you believe in, all that you understand the world to be, the sea, the land, the air, it's all been created by one God. And this is the God who we've come to talk to you about. But even though they were bringing the gospel to them, they almost weren't able to stop these people from offering sacrifices to them. Something that I, I was wanting to point out here was that the people had such a wrong view of God. They thought gods were like people. The Greek idea was that you just couldn't trust God. The gods, you just couldn't believe them. You couldn't take them at their word. Well, the true and the living God can be trusted, unlike the gods of the ancient world. But maybe we think sometimes, well, if I were God, I wouldn't have let this happen. Look at Isaiah chapter 55. It's in the Old Testament. Look at chapter 55. I know some of you have your Bible on some kind of a device. That's great. But figure out how to make notes. Because I want you to note the passage that we're going to read here. It's Isaiah 55. God says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as high As the heavens are above the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. My thoughts, my ways. I notice that in each verse he says that. My thoughts, my ways. My ways, my thoughts. He's emphasizing the way I think and what I do is different than the way you think and what you would do. Do we all understand that? We can't make God like us. Well, is he good? Is he loving? Let's just don't go there yet. Let's just establish the fact that God doesn't operate always like we would. Are you okay with that? Okay, he's different because he's God. You know, one reason we trust him is because we've seen him work in the past And we have had the advantage of hindsight many times with the work of God in our lives, right? So if we can trust him for things that we have known, we can trust him still with things that we don't understand now. My thoughts. God is not like those gods who would lie to people. The Bible says God is not a man. God is not uh, a man, a human that changes his mind all the time. He does not lie. God is not like us. He can always be trusted. He always does right. He always does right. The other thing that we often think, and there's nothing wrong with thinking these ways when when I'm saying this. It's like, why do you think this? But people will think, well, if God is just, then why? Usually goes to a Hitler. 
If God is just, then why Hitler? Why? Well, listen to this. The evil people of, of all the, you know, going back as far as we can, can, we know. The Neros, the Hitlers, you know, all of these terrorists. If God is just, well, wait a second. God is just. It's just that people don't get the justice of God before they die, usually. They die and they haven't experienced God's justice yet. The Bible tells us that even after they die, it's going to be a while before they experience God's justice. But they will. And I want you to just look at Revelation chapter 20. It's the last book of the Bible, chapter 20. This time it's called the second resurrection. This is when the wicked people are raised to life and they're going to stand before the great white throne of God, which is God's justice throne, and God is going to mete out what they deserve. Look at what it says. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small. These are the wicked dead, as you'll see. I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. These are really bad guys, great and not so bad guys, but they haven't trusted God. They're not saved, great and small, standing before the throne. And the books were open. And then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what? What they had done. Believe me, the History Channel does not know everything Hitler did. What is it about the History Channel? It seems like all there are documentaries about Hitler. Nobody knows all the wicked and the evil thing that he and other people have done, but you know what? Every single thing God knows, that's what this is telling us. And they will have to give account according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and hell gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. See, we're saved by grace, amen? No, we're, we're not even close to this, okay? The closest thing we get is when we stand before Jesus is called the judgment seat of Christ. The word judgment seat means race platform like I'm on right now. It's the word bima to be lifted up. And on a, a race platform, uh, the judges of Olympic games would sit and watch the games and the winners would come and they would be given their rewards, okay? So someday the Bible says all of us believers will appear before the judgment seat of Christ. It's not a judgment for salvation. It's a judgment for rewards. Everybody clear on that? This is where you won't be. And if you don't know Jesus here, you don't want to be. This is where people have rejected God, small and great. Well, I'm not really that bad, so you're a small sinner. Small sins are enough to keep you out of heaven just as much as big sins are able to keep you out of heaven because the wages of sin is death. And this means separation from God. 
And so these people are judged according to their deeds. You will not be judged according to your deeds. For a grace are we saved through faith, and that not ourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Praise God, because my works aren't going to be looked over in the great white throne judgment. So is God just? Oh, yeah. Read the back of the book. God is just, and every single wicked person who thinks they've got away with something, it's there. The books are open, and their names are not written in the book of life. That's sad. You trust in Jesus Christ. Your name is written in the book of life. Jesus has your name. Saved, 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 saved. You're there. Praise the Lord. The next thing that I, I want to contrast with these, the, the pagan gods and, and these myths is there was no such thing as a loving God. The truth of the true and living God is that God loves us deeply. Most of the time we say God loves us so much. I like the fact God loves us deeply. No pagan god loved any human being. And I want you to look at Psalm 103, which would be, of course, to the left, pretty much middle-ish in your Bible. Psalm 103. David begins with this praise, bless the Lord, all my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, all my soul, and forget none of his benefits, who forgives all your iniquities, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, and crowns you with steadfast love and mercy. Ah. Then look at verse 8. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in deep love. That's what steadfast love, compassion, deep love. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide. This means he will not constantly accuse us nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love to those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him, for he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. A couple of things. God knows your frame. God knows your frame. He knows how you're built. He knows how you think. He knows your struggles. My frame is not your frame. 
He knows your frame. You've messed up this week or last week or this month or the last year. He knows your frame. He remembers your just dust. You're not a god. He knows that. He understands that. Now, of course, God gives us power to change through the power of the Holy Spirit. And that's one of the things that happens in a Christian's life. But Christians aren't perfect, as everybody here knows it. And Christians hate their sins, as everybody here knows. And Christians, if they could, would push a button that would make us never sin again. We'd say, if that's the button, I'm pushing it right now. That makes us different from unsaved people. We hate our sin. But he knows our frame. He's not the God that is harsh, cruel, who cannot love, and who is, it says, constantly accusing. He will not always chide. And then the other thing that I want you to think about is verse 13. I remember it, memorized it this way. Just as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. Just as a father. Now, Leslie and I raised three awesome kids I love them. We love them so much. And I can remember doing this with them. And now we have four grands. And I have done it with, let's see, where do I start? I've done it with Riley and Ivy and Leela and Genesis. And I still do it till they're too big. I'll probably do it just as the Lord has compassion Just as a father has compassion on his children. What is that word compassion? You'll never guess. It's the word for bouncing a child on your knee. Yes. It's the word for a father bouncing his little child on his knee. One of our pastors, they just had a little boy And he was telling me, you know, sometimes I just stare into his little face and I think, I helped create you. That just hit me. I thought, what a cool thought. But as God bounces us on his knee, God is thinking, I created you. I love you. If you love your children... How much more God loves you. It's sad that these people, that Paul and Barnabas went to minister to, did not have these concepts of God. They couldn't trust God because they created God in their own image. And they didn't know a God who loved them. But see, the greatest expression of God's love for us came through his son, Jesus Christ. He's the fullest expression of the God who, yes, wants you to be his child. And that happens when we pray and the Lord says, 
I'll receive you, but you've got to ask me to be your savior. And I don't think that I need to like try to convince you that you need God. I don't think I need to do that. I don't need to convince you that you're not right with God or that you're not sure if you're going to heaven or not. I don't think I need to do that today. I just feel really like the Lord just wants me to offer you an invitation to give your life to him. Jesus will save you. You won't end up in that great white throne judgment that I was talking about. But rather, you're a child loved by a compassionate God that you can trust. The verse God put on my heart this week, thinking about you, was this. The verse in the Bible says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. You know how God tugs on you. You know how God's speaking to you. So I want to ask us to bow our heads. Go ahead, close your eyes so you don't have distractions around. And God's pulling your heart. He's tugging on you. And this is what I want you to do. I want you to respond to God because today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. Rather, ask the Lord to save you. The Bible says, whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And we just call by praying. And so I'm going to pray a prayer, a simple prayer, asking God to save. You pray it with me, phrase by phrase. But you mean it with all your heart. You don't have to pray it out loud, okay? But you just pray it with all your heart. And Jesus will save you. He will come into your life. Pray this prayer. Father in heaven, thank you for loving me and for sending Jesus to die for all the wrong things that I've done. I'm sorry for my sins. Please forgive me. I accept Jesus as my Savior. I want to be a new person. Give me a new life. It is a relief to ask you to be my Savior and my Lord. Keep your heads bowed, your eyes closed. If you prayed that prayer, this is what I want you to do. The Bible said that if we will acknowledge Jesus, he will acknowledge us before the Father and the angels who are in heaven. But he says if we don't acknowledge him, we basically don't mean business. Everybody that Jesus called to follow him that we know of in the Bible, he always called called them openly and publicly, not in some secret little room where they could say yes and nobody know. He always said, 
He called them openly and publicly. You've prayed that prayer. You've prayed it. You believe it. Jesus has saved you. Your name is written in the book of life right now. Now, this is what I'm going to ask you to do openly and publicly. I'm not going to ask you to come forward here and stand. Well, that would be open and public. I'm not going to ask you to stand up. That would, of course, be really super open public. But what I want to do, these people are praying for you. Okay, you got more people praying for you, I bet, than you ever had in your whole life. What I want you to do right now, you prayed that prayer, you mean business with God, I want you to raise your hand up, okay? I want you to raise your hand so I can see you. Your hand up and keep your hands up, will you? I see you over here. I see you here in the second row, and I see you over here in the second row. I see you way back there. Keep your hands up. I see you here. I'm actually giving you something, or somebody's giving you something for me. So keep your hands up, okay? See you right here. Anybody else? And you're thinking, oh, I should raise my hand. I'm just, I'm nervous. Oh, come on. Jesus wasn't nervous to save you when he died. Anybody else? Okay. I want to pray for you. Thank you, Lord, for these who have given their lives to you today. Pray that they'll walk with you in obedience that they'll see more and more about this new life they have in you. In Jesus' name, amen. We want to say welcome to God's family. Another page turned in the book of life, right? More names, more names. That's awesome.
Now you can find all the programs of Heart and Soul Ministries on podcast. You can easily play this week or past week's programs, or you can even download them to your vice in only a few minutes. Try to search for Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries at your iTunes store now. The following program is called Equipping the Saints. Hello, Heart and Soul listeners. I'm Pastor Greg Lundstedt, and I'm so glad that I can share my series from Equipping the Saints with you. I pray that God will grow each and every one of you in Christ through this series. You see, faith is a work of God. It's not a work of man. Yes, we believe, we respond, and we are responsible to do so, and we are culpable if we do not. But faith is a work of God. Turn to John chapter 6. John chapter 6. And if you read John chapter 6, as the Lord Jesus keeps sharing the truth about believing in Him and then giving illustrations and applications, the other people are just listening like this. They're not getting it. They're not getting it. The questions they ask are just like that. They're not getting it. John chapter 6, verse 29. Jesus answered and said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Hey, you've got a lunch for free. That's why you're here. Notice what he says. Do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man shall give to you. For on him the Father, even God, has set his seal. They said, Therefore to him... What shall we do that we may do the works of God? Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. That's the work of God. How does this work out? I don't know. 
We're responsible. We trust in Jesus. It is our faith. We believe, but God uses his word by his spirit to convict the heart, and he produces faith. Faith comes from hearing and hearing from the word of Christ. And if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. Look at Acts chapter 13, verse 48. Acts chapter 13. Actually, let's go back to verse 45. Here we have the Jews in the crowd are always stirring things up when Paul's preaching. We see this here. Acts chapter 13, verse 45. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began contradicting the things spoken by Paul. Hmm. And were blaspheming. And Paul and Barnabas spoke boldly and said it was necessary that the word of God should be spoken to you first, i.e. Jews, since you repudiated it, you rejected it, and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For thus the Lord has commanded us, I have placed you as a light for the Gentiles, that you should bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles, this is in the crowd there, heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many had been appointed to eternal life, believed. And the word of the Lord was being spread throughout the whole region. In our passage, we see it is God who allots saving faith. But he does it through a means. And we're responsible. And we're responsible. So Paul is writing to those who have a saving faith that has already been allotted. Now let me tell you, if there's something you think you did to cause you to believe, you're in trouble. If you attribute to yourself, hey, I figured it out, I did this, I did that, rather than God convicting you with his word by his spirit and then responding in faith. If you think, hey, I went through everything and I figured it out and I thought, hey, you know, I think I'll believe in Jesus. You know what? God is the one who brings forth genuine faith and it is in the context of his convicting gospel God is the one who has allotted true believers already saving faith. You see, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. Saving faith did not come from us, it came from God, but there's a means, and we're responsible. He's saying here, Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have been allotted a faith, and notice what he says, of the same kind, back in Second Peter 1, same kind as ours. Very interesting. He says they've been allotted, they've been received, one that is of the same. This faith, it's talking about the faith of the same kind as ours. Now the question is, who is he speaking of when he says ours? Well, some believe he's speaking of the Jews, maybe, that he's speaking of you Gentiles have the same faith as we have, and that's possible. Acts 15 talks about that. But most every commentator, and I would agree as I study this, that he is speaking of the same faith that the apostles had. You've received the same faith we did. We have the same faith. We have the same faith. The term same kind is an interesting word, isotimon. It carries the idea of being equal to, iso, and then timon speaks of honor or preciousness. You have the same like precious faith we do. You have the same saving faith we do. You know, Peter is fond of this word, a cognate of this word that speaks of preciousness. 
He shares that the blood of Jesus Christ being shed for us was precious. It was valued and honored. 1 Peter 1.19 He speaks of Christ as the choice and precious cornerstone. This value being for us. 1 Peter chapter 2. In chapter 1 of 1 Peter, he says in verse 7 that the proof of your faith being more precious, more valuable, more honorable than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Genuine faith brings Christ glory and honor. So he's saying back in our passage, you've been allotted the same precious faith as the apostles. True saving faith is the same for every believer. There's not a different faith out there. The faith is the same. It's the same as we're going to see, and the focus is Jesus Christ. And it is eternally valuable. God has brought forth through the conviction of the word this saving faith, which is absolutely precious and valuable. Praise the Lord if you have trusted in Christ. Praise the Lord if you have been saved. Now notice as we get close to finishing verse 1, we have an amazing description of this faith here. Simon Peter, bondservant apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours. Notice he says now, by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Very interesting. It's grammatically connected to the term faith. And he says, by the righteousness. And you'll notice in the notes that I've given you, I have in parentheses, by, and I've written the word in. You see that? The term for the Greek preposition, en, E-N, and I always remember en because it sounds like in, and that's really what it means with the dative, within or in. It means something's in there. So what does this phrase mean? What does this phrase mean? Notice, first of all, it doesn't mean our faith comes by the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Is that what it means? Is it by his righteousness that we have received faith? Some would say because he's righteous and he did the right thing, he obeyed the Father, he died for us, that we have faith. And those are true things. Yes, Jesus Christ is the righteous and righteously, perfectly obeyed the Father, but is that what's being said here? Do we have faith allotted to us because or by his righteousness? Think about it. Notice in your Bibles, if you have an NESB, they put in your notes there, or in And I appreciate that, because I think that's the best translation. Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who receive the faith, the same kind of ours, in the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So although salvation is because of Jesus Christ, the righteous who died for our sins, that is absolutely true. I think it's possible, he's saying, the faith that we have is in something. Obviously, we know from Scripture our faith is in Jesus Christ. We know that. Jesus Christ is the one who says we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. But he's pointing to an element of this. In the righteousness of God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Think about it. No one can be saved apart from recognizing their unrighteousness and trusting in Christ for his righteousness. He can't be saved. You can't be saved if you don't believe you need a Savior. If you don't believe the truth of what God has done. Our faith obviously includes a sense that we believe He is righteous. The sinless, spotless Lamb of God died for our sins, and when we trust in Him, we receive His 
right standing, His righteousness. So then we stand by faith before God in the righteousness of Christ, not in our own righteousness. You see, if you believed in some way your faith had something to do with your righteousness, you're in big trouble. If you think, I was a good guy and I've done these things, and I trusted Jesus and God saved me. I'm a good guy. If you think in any way in, in your righteousness, you're in trouble. It is completely in the righteousness of God, our Savior Jesus Christ. What did Paul say in Philippians chapter 3? Turn to Philippians 3. See, there's a lot here. Can you turn the fire hose down a little bit? So, Philippians chapter 3, verse 8. Paul says, More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of what? Knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. And notice what he says. And be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. A righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. We've received a faith, and that faith is in the context or sphere of the righteousness in the righteousness of Jesus Christ alone. We were saved by grace through faith, and not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. If you think you're good enough, you help God out, that's not faith of the same type as the apostles. The apostles' faith was in Christ alone completely. So then, Peter is writing to those who have the same precious faith as we do in the righteousness of God our Savior. And I struggle with that, but I think that's what it means. First Peter chapter 1, verse 1, Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours, by or literally in the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. And then did you notice the object of our saving faith? How he was described? In the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. What a tremendous statement. We're going to see this term, Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, throughout this book. Our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And here we have a clear reference to the deity of Jesus Christ. If you know Greek, this is what's called a Granville Sharp Rule. It speaks of those two items in a special Greek formulation, which means that the term God and Savior points to Jesus Christ. And we can see that in English. We can see that. If you just read it through, our God and Savior is who? Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is God. You remember his name, Jesus, Yahweh, Yeshua. Yahweh saves and you shall name him Jesus, Matthew one twenty one, for he shall save his people from their sins. Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah, who would need to suffer and die for us. Jesus Christ is described as our God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus Christ is God. And there's a lot of passages that point to it, and you can add this one to your list. Our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. You see, when you trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, when you have a faith the same as the apostles, believing in Christ, obviously in the context of the need for righteousness, the need for salvation, God becomes your God. Throughout here, we're going to see our God, our God. 
he becomes your God. And notice he's also the Savior. Our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now this term Savior means someone who saves. You see, friends, we need to be saved from God's wrath because of our sin. The wages of sin is death. Yet God sent his Son to take on human flesh to live the perfect life and obedience even to the point of death, death on a cross. And he died and went into the grave and he rose from the dead. And whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be what? Saved. You see, if you call upon the Savior, Jesus Christ, you will be saved. It's not just simply raising your hand and repeating a prayer back. Now, if that prayer in your heart of hearts, you're calling upon Jesus to save you, you believe he died for your sins, amen, praise the Lord. There are so many wonderful passages concerning the Savior. Let me just share a couple and then we'll finish up here. Mary knew the Savior. She rejoiced in God and her Savior, Luke 147. Then turn to Luke 2. We're coming up even to Christmas time. Turn to Luke 2. Jesus saves by his righteousness, right? The righteous God took our sin in his body, and he died and rose from the dead. Luke chapter 2, verse 11. Speaking to the shepherds, And the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which shall be for all the people. For today in the city of David has been born for you a Savior, who is Christ the Lord, a Savior. What did the Samaritans say to the woman at the well who had told them about Jesus and then had listened to his word? What did they say? They said, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves and know that this one is indeed the Savior of the world. 1 John 4.14, and we have beheld and bear witness that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. He has been exalted to the right hand of God as Prince and Savior, Peter would share in Acts 5. Titus chapter 3. Actually, turn to Titus 3. Titus chapter 3, verse 3. He says, For we were once foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice, envy, hateful, hating one another. Hey, that's a non-believer. That's us. But when the kindness of God and what? God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared. He saved us not on the basis of deeds we had done in righteousness, but according to his mercy by the washing, regeneration, renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out richly upon us through Jesus Christ, our Savior. And as we finish up in our passage back in Second Peter, throughout this book, if you study this book, you will see the Savior is emphasized. He's emphasized. We see in verse 11, For this way the entrance to the kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will be abundantly supplied. Chapter 2, verse 20, Those who had a phony knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they really didn't, and they showed it. Chapter 3, verse 1, we see, this is now below the second letter I'm writing, and he goes on, he says, the commandment later on, middle of verse 2, of the Lord and Savior. Very last portion of our text. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Why is Peter reminding us of these things? We're going to see later on, when we forget our purification from sins, we become unfruitful and useless 
in our relationship with Jesus, the knowledge of him. Peter is focusing on the most important things. And the most important thing is Jesus. He is our Savior. He is God. We need to be reminded of what he has done for us. So I want to read the passage and we'll conclude here. Simon Peter, verse 1, a bondservant of Jesus Christ to those who have received a faith the same kind as ours, by the righteousness or in the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Would you call yourself a bondservant of Jesus Christ? Have you had the same type of faith that Paul had and Peter had? Have you trusted in Christ alone for salvation? Have you recognized that you're unrighteous and in need of salvation? Have you recognized you need a Savior from your sins? You see, the wages of sin is death. And God made it clear that his wrath will come upon those who reject Christ, who are in their sins. You will experience the second death, eternal torment for your sins. God's a righteous, holy God. But we in our pride, we reject that. But God convicts our hearts of his son, Jesus Christ. And whoever will call upon the Savior, Jesus Christ, will be saved. Well, what about us who have been saved, who have a like faith? Don't forget, it is in the context of Christ's righteousness alone that we've been saved. Don't forget, he is our Savior. Don't forget to focus on Christ.
We are now ending our Unity in Christ broadcast. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to being with you again next week.